0: Welcome to the 223rd installment of Ear to the Ground, the Land Stewardship Project's podcast on family farming, sustainable agriculture, local food systems, and local democracy. I'm Brian DeVore, editor of the Land Stewardship Letter. I can't think of anyone better suited than Ron Cruz to undertake something like the National Sustainable Agriculture Oral History Project. That's because Cruz has been there for much of the history of the so-called sustainable agriculture movement, from the time he co-founded the Land Stewardship Project with the late Victor Ray in 1982, to his more recent work helping fund innovative farming systems while working at the McKnight Foundation. And as a former journalist, Ron knows how to ask the kinds of questions that not only provide insights into the backstory behind certain points in history, but also what inspired people to do such pioneering work at a time when the term sustainable agriculture, was barely acknowledged. A few years ago, after wrapping up an extremely productive career working to promote and support a type of agriculture that was sustainable for the land, our communities, and people, Ron undertook the oral history project while serving as the endowed chair in agricultural systems at the Minnesota Institute for Sustainable Agriculture, which is part of the University of Minnesota. He crisscrossed the country, conducting an impressive number of interviews with the women and men who were there from the beginning, advocating for the laws and government programs that continue to undergird efforts to achieve a sustainable farm and food system in the U.S. In the end, he did 37 interviews with individuals and recorded three roundtable discussions. Anyone who has followed the sustainable agriculture movement will recognize some of the people featured, including LSP's Dana Jackson, George Booty, Sister Mary Tashini, and Mark Schultz. Cruz makes it clear that this archive, which is housed on the website of the Minnesota Institute for Sustainable Agriculture, is by no means exhaustive. There are plenty of sustainable ag influencers he would have liked to have interviewed, given more time and resources. However, these recordings provide excellent documentation of the development and evolution of public policies advancing sustainable and organic agriculture. History going all the way back to the 1970s is represented here. The recordings provide the inside story on federal policy reforms achieved through seven farm bills. The interviewees also discuss the development of the National Sustainable Agriculture Coalition, which advocates for policy on the national level. The archive also features discussions centered on where the efforts of sustainable and organic farming advocates came up short, as well as an exploration of further policy changes needed to advance a regenerative farm and food system far into the future. I sat down to talk to Ron about why he thought it was so important to conduct these interviews And what lessons they provide today as we continue to try and reach the goals set by those early pioneers in sustainable and organic agriculture policy.
1: Well, I uh, I came to the sustainable agriculture work in sort of an unusual way because my background in education was in printing and journalism. Um, I grew up in a little town in northwestern Iowa where my dad worked in a creamery his whole life, actually, and. uh, but I got, to, when I was in fifth grade, I got to be the what they call the printer's devil, the guy in the, in the little print shop. It was all letterpress. I really liked that. It got me interested in journalism, and so I got a journalism uh, degree from uh, South Dakota State and did work for a couple uh, smaller regional newspapers when I first uh, started working. But my background in northwestern Iowa really is what prepared me for this work, because our family always were out at my uncle's farm for all our family events. My mom didn't inherit the farm because she was a daughter, and my my uncle, who was older, got the the family farm, but our whole social life depended on that farm. You might say we always had our gatherings out there, and when my dad had a day off from the creamery, he worked on the farm because he was raised on a farm and would Work for a side of beef or whatever for my uncle. But I watched as I grew older that place where we always played, that pasture that had the creek going through it and uh, kind of an idyllic place for a kid, just changed the um, whole environment around northwestern Iowa. Post-World War II, you know, it hit real hard in the 50s and 60s and 70s, just changed dramatically from a mixed agriculture family farm based to an increasingly larger farms and pretty much corn and soybean farmers. A lot of it was brought about by the fact that when they made a rule that in order to to sell your milk at the creamery, you couldn't put it in cans anymore. You had to have a bulk tank, and it was a sanitary. It made sense for some sanitary reasons, I guess, but what it did was cause a big capital expense that a lot of those smaller farmers who would normally have maybe a half a dozen or eight cows around, and then have a pasture. They sold their cows and uh, just put that pasture into row crop. Hmm. Not everyone, but most of them. And that just changed the landscape so much. And uh, the waterways came in instead of the creeks winding through the the pastures, and all of these things changed. So that really interested me and made me feel kind of bad, actually. Hmm. So I got a chance to... uh, work uh and after i was at rapid city at the rapid city journal and uh, the indian uprising the uh, wounded knee uprising happened while i was there in the early 70s and just by the good fortune of being the police and court reporter i ended up writing a lot of stories about that whole dispute and got to know senator jim Aberesk from south dakota who, uh, was the, uh, the chair of the Indian Affairs Committee, and we kind of hit it off. He grew up on the Rosebud Reservation, and I liked him, and he invited me to come to Washington, D.C. to work for him as, as a press aide, and this was 1973, I believe, so I decided to do it, took my family there, and, uh, and then we moved to Washington for a few years, and I worked for Aberesk. But mm. Aberesk relied, not surprisingly, from South Dakota on Farmers Union as a Democrat for where he got his advice and the people he trusted to work with. And I got to know a number of Farmers Union people there as a result of that job. And when I left that position, I was really interested in agriculture by then. And Farmers Union had started a program called the American Farm Project, Under a man who became my mentor, a man named Victor Ray, who was actually ended up being the chairman, first chair of our board at Land Stewardship Project, and Victor started this program under Carter that, uh, through the Endowment for the Humanities, it was aimed at bringing the humanities out to the people, rather than just having it be on campuses in big cities. And in that project, they chose Farmers Union chose five farmers in the 23 states where they had activities going on. And the idea was to educate these young farm couples about the culture of agriculture. And I got to direct that program when the first director left, and I got to do this for a couple years under Victor's guidance. And it was just such a wonderful experience. That's where I got exposed to Wendell Berry's writing. Mm-hmm. The Unsettling of America came out at that time, That probably the most important book in my life, and I think many people's lives that are involved in in agriculture, and that really set me on on my path. And when the when Reagan got elected, the American Farm Project ended because it was a grant from the National Endowment for the Humanities. And Reagan took the humanities back on campus, put a, a guy named William Bennett uh, in charge of it, and he was no friend to sustainable ideas. And uh, so. I wondered, well, what are we going to do? And I talked to Victor about it, and we talked to some folks at Farmers Union, and they gave us the little space in the copy room at the uh, Farmers Union office in St. Paul, and we started what we were calling the Land Stewardship Project, aimed at really fostering an ethic of stewardship deeply in agriculture with the idea that the first calling of agriculture should be care of the land, and out of that will come the abundance. Of harvest and have that approach. And so that's how we got that very idealistic idea, tried to put it to practice at first in, in Minnesota. And then along the way, then I got to direct land stewardship till 1993. I went on and I got to direct the, for a few years out in Montana, the uh, NCAT, the National Center for Appropriate Technology. Mm-hmm. And then in the more recent years, I got involved in philanthropy, and through work at the Mott Foundation in Michigan and the McKnight Foundation for nine-plus years that I retired from three years ago, I kept in touch with and helped work with the board to get funding for a lot of sustainable agriculture projects. I'm wondering, going back a little bit, when you
0: and Victor started the Land Stewardship Project, did you get a sense that this was a larger movement? Uh, you, You talked about Wendell Berry's book, the unsettling of America, and some other things that were going on out there, and you probably got maybe a little bit of a sense working with the Farmers Union on that project, that there were people across the country interested in these issues, but did you get a sense, did you, were you, when you were starting the land stewardship project, that this could be one of a, I guess, a network of groups or a coalition of groups across the country that would be working on similar issues in their own different
1: areas. Well, it was clear that other things were going on in other states. Out west, this was a a budding movement. Uh, You know, a lot of it really did come out of, it seems to me, that really wave of consciousness shifting that came out of the 60s and uh, took hold in the environment. And it was really kind of an agriculture manifestation of this growing concern about the environment that was beneath beneath all of this. I'm glad you asked this question, though, because the other big motivator with the Land Stewardship Project, being a pretty Midwestern-focused, largely Midwestern-focused organization, especially at that time, was the church, particularly the Catholic Church. And in 1979, in the fall of 79, Pope um, Paul II, I believe it was, came to uh, Iowa and uh, to visit the middle of the country, and the church was concerned about what was going on in agriculture, the loss of family farms, et cetera. And a group called the National Catholic Rural Life Conference uh, was there in Des Moines, and together they came out with a, a bishop statement called Strangers and Guests, which was a real strong church statement about the support, the concept of stewardship, and the importance of agriculture, the importance of family farms, and that had a tremendous uh, influence on it, on both Victor and me, and particularly on a lot of the farmers. I have to say that a lot of the farmers down in southeastern Minnesota, which were still farming with a very stewardship ethic, going all the way back to the 30s as, uh, as pioneers in the conservation movement coming during the Depression uh, out of the Dust Bowl days, they were religious people. Many of them were Catholic, and that encyclical really meant a lot a lot to them and then the, fortunately the Lutherans stepped in with the lands God giving our caring was the name of their statement and so there was a real religious sense of that we needed as as people of faith we need to take part in this and we need to bring that aspect into the environmental movement and particularly in agriculture. When
0: did uh, in all this when did the national sustainable ag coalition or whatever maybe there was a precursor to that kind of come about i know you were kind of there but at the beginning with that as well when 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 in all this mix so lsp gets started um and then 82 82, and then we're uh going into the 80s and uh when did it kind of give us a little idea where where that all kind of fell
1: in well a lot of that came from uh at this time, another extremely important group of the Center for Rural Affairs in Wald Hill, Nebraska. Marty Strange was a fellow's name that directed it first, and his, and his partner was Chuck Hassabrook, who then, when Marty left, Chuck went on to, uh, for 26 years, I think as director, uh, something like maybe 20 of the 26 years he was there. And uh, they were very interested in, in particular around tax issues around agriculture and farm size and that sort of thing. And at the same time, in, in the uh, around the center of the country in the mid-'80s, another farm crisis was happening with a lot of farms, uh, people going out of business, having been pushed in the 70s uh, to get big or get out. We were seeing the uh, get out part in, yeah. in spades at that time. And that was in the mid-'80s, and that's when um, Land Stewardship Project, under the leadership of people like Steve O'Neill, this, the late Steve O'Neill, this mm-hmm. great organizer that worked land stewardship project our concern was a lot around the insurance companies that were taking taking over farms and repossession and then not only taking them over but not taking care of them when they got them and that was the angle we brought to it the focus we put on it was look what is happening to the land here in addition to the people so it was that time in the mid-80s when then that was going on in other states and we found people are working on this concern in wisconsin in Iowa, in Nebraska with the Center for Rural Affairs, and we decided to form the Midwest Sustainable Agriculture Working Group, which was, and we got uh, Ferd Hefner, one of my big heroes of my life. I was uh, ready to, uh, he was freelancing at that time, and we were at a very modest amount of money we were able to raise. We were able to engage Ferd, to work with Chuck, uh, and, and actually for working in Washington, and that's when we've started to f- try to affect national policy. We came to realize, I always say, that the reason we didn't have land stewardship on the land the way we wanted it wasn't so much a human frailty, it was the fact that the, the policies were driving people in the other direction. All the incentives coming out of government were pushing people to get bigger, to concentrate on just one or two crops. And the idea of a general farm was just sort of falling out of fashion and and really almost out of economic possibility. Mm-hmm. So that was driving it. I think that's a really good point because
0: there is some, uh, and I still run into people today that I talk to a little bit about, you know, the sustainable ag movement, the regenerative ag movement, whatever you want to call it, it doesn't need to be involved with policy. If it's truly grassroots, it can kind of do its own thing and ignore what's going on. But... It became pretty clear to you early on that that's not the case, that this it's the big elephant in the room that kind of can really confound any efforts we might be making on our own individual farms or in our, in our
1: communities. Yep, that's absolutely right. I'm, I'm still convinced of that. And uh, one of the things we talk about, we'll get into it a little bit more in the interviews, is this whole thing of what policies do we need now mm-hmm. uh, at this stage. I tried to ask that with every interview I did. And to get the advice of these people that had worked much of their lives on this, what do we do now? And, and I don't know any of them that don't think uh, federal, particularly federal policy, mm-hmm. but some state policies too, are what have to change in order to really get this change to take place in a, any kind of a large scale and be able to make uh, redirect the subsidies and that sort of thing in ways that will enable people to do these people that are willing to take these steps to make it possible for them.
0: Well, let's get into the, the National Sustainable Agricultural Oral History Archive, which is, is what it's called. I guess give me a little background on what gave you the idea for, you had worked in this movement from day one and had, in, in various aspects and in different parts of the country, and I think even internationally, you had traveled and, and, and been involved in conferences, that type of thing. So you had a real big-picture view as well as kind of a ground-level view What gave you the idea that we needed to develop kind of an archive, an oral history archive at this time,
1: and and what was yeah some of the thinking behind that? Sure. I was um, um, deciding that I was 66 years old and thinking, well, it's about time to think about retiring, and I was wanting to do some other things in my life, more time to gardening and things like that. And so I was thinking about kind of winding up some things, but then I was also still concerned about the issues uh, that were hadn't been taken care of, obviously, by any means, and uh, what I've noticed is that a lot of young people were, in, were increasingly interested in sustainable ag, and the programs at the universities were filling up with students and all this wonderful thing was happening, but I became aware that These young people, how could they have any kind of awareness of what went into this, the 30 years that brought us up to where we are today? And I also, that was compounded by the fact that realizing my own age (laughs) and several of these people I knew that were I considered mentors and pioneers were older than me. And I just realized I've got to get these people on the record so that this is there for, for the future for people now that are interested But also, particularly for the future, I always said that uh, when I would start my interviews, let's pretend that it's 50 years Mm. ahead or 75 years ahead And sustainable agriculture. We've come out, it really is uh, dominating now. uh, Things have come around finally over the years, and Mm. people are going to look back and well, how did this all get going? I mean, who did this? Why did this start? And what was motivating these people who are clearly rowing against the tide? Uh, what what got them going? So it was that, and I'm also thinking, you know, this phrase, uh, those who cannot remember the past are condemned to repeat it, yeah. uh, Santiana's phrase. I think that we just need to. Obviously, it's a cliche almost. you got to really look back so you don't make some of the same mistakes. And uh, I thought that's another thing we can accomplish uh, with these interviews.
0: I think that's a really
1: interesting way you set up the interviews
0: where you said pretend that uh, it's the future, uh, what did you say, 30 years or 50 I years? I said 50, 50 or 75. 50, and that the sustainable ag movement is the dominant model. I think that's a really great way to set it because it could, it could probably affect people kind of the way they, well, for one thing, it's really uh, smart to say, pretend people don't because people are speaking in the moment, and they're yeah. going to assume people know certain things. Well, the, in the future, they're not going to know that. But the other thing is that we've we've won, <laughs> and and this is how how did we do this? You know, because right. I it sounds like maybe reading between the lines, one of your goals was to show it, whether whatever movement it would be that people might get something out of this because they could say, well, how does a movement like this, which was the underdog, which was not in any way close to even being the dom- dominant model. How does it succeed?
1: You know, how do you kind of punch above your weight kind of thing? Exactly. Yeah. And that needs to continue to happen. But when you look back, um, what some of the folks, like I'll mention some f- names later, but like Roger Blowbaum, who's mm-hmm. still around, I think he's about 90 or so now. And, uh, he, uh, you know, was working back with Hubert Humphrey in his campaigns in those days. And, When you look back to uh, the literature somewhat, the way these people that were bringing these sustainable ideas forward were just so dismissed and ridiculed. I think the one was, I think this was Earl Butts that said, okay, if we're going to have organic farming, are you ready to have uh, manure piles as high as the Empire State Building? You know, all this crazy stuff, you know. It reminds me, I always think about this phrase. I, I looked it up this morning to get it right from Mahatma Gandhi. First they ignore you, then they laugh at you, then they fight you, mm-hmm. then you win. <laughs> <laughs> well, and I always want to add one extra thing to, to Gandhi's great quote is I think that then they fight you, an sustainable egg, then they try to co-opt you, mm-hmm. and that's the struggle too. That whole thing of, okay, right now it's... There's some fashionable aspects to the organic farming and sustainability and some obviously some corporate interest in it uh, for for their own profit and benefits with some good intentions I think as well but that whole issue of co-optation coming into the picture too is, is part of it well that was I was gonna ask is where we, what stage are we at right now <laughs> <laughs> I think we're in the uh, in the winning but uh, co-opting state but I also uh, I think it... To say that we're winning is a uh, is very um, optimistic and maybe a little Pollyannish because one of the things that when I asked people at the end of the interviews, invariably, almost invariably, everyone talked about their disappointment being that the deeper issues of the structure of agriculture that go all the way back to Bob Berglund's "A Time to Choose" study in the nineteen nineteen eighty. Uh, really have not been met and the uh, you know we still are in a situation where we have this dominant industrial agriculture high input mode operating on most of the land while the sustainable organic is coming in but it's still on the margins and the deeper aspect of that that Wendell Berry talks about in West Jackson is that how can you have sustainability? In just part of the earth, or when everything's connected, to everything else. How yeah. long can this happen? And it's proven every day, practically in studies, that even the organic food has pesticides in it. It's just an example of that. Mm-hmm. So that I think is our real, real struggle that we've just got to continue to find through policies and other efforts to, to keep getting the, to ultimately get this dominant paradigm changed, and not to get too diverted of, uh, from our discussion. But I think this is where even like issues of climate come in mm-hmm. to solve to a to begin to really solve the fearsome prospect of of climate change is uh, doing a lot of things that involve sustainability, and 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 particularly in the role of agriculture. You've partially answered my next
0: question, which was who the audience is, but it sounds like one of the audiences is people who are involved, kind of the younger people coming up into this movement, which is really exciting to see, to make them realize there is this history there. But it sounds like there were some other audiences you had in mind as well.
1: Yeah, that's right. Policy changers, people that really want to try to figure out what do we do next. It would be good to probably listen to some of these or read the transcripts to get what's been done, and what's been tried, and and, uh, just the struggles to advance. So in the present, I think it has some value. But the other one is the future. Mm -hmm. I mean, I really was motivated probably more by that. I didn't want, I thought these people, to my mind, are are what they, you know, the cliche unsung hero. That's what they are, I believe, uh, and uh, it's no wonder people haven't heard of them. They aren't the kind of people that toot their horns that much, and uh, they, there were voices that needed to be heard from a historic perspective. That was really my principal motivator. Is there something in particular about oral
0: history that uh, lends
1: itself uh, to telling the story? There's nothing beats hearing people in their own voices. We decided, I think, all but two, maybe, or maybe three of the interviews I was able to do with a videographer. They're not great videography. They're just talking heads. But at least you're looking at these people when they're talking and it kind of think just the way they look, what they wear, and everything even sort of sets the period for, for the future of what... Mm-hmm this was I just think it just has so much more meaning and uh, easier for people to really listen when it's in their in their own voices mm-hmm. and I think with the further aspect of video it just makes it all the better and then what we decided to do which did make more work but I thought it was another way of reaching out to people when you go to the website you have the choice of watching a video if you'd rather just listen, you can hear the interviews, just the mm-hmm. oral part, and we also did transcripts. I had oh. I managed to find a wonderful transcriber, so uh, the transcripts are there too.
0: I wanted to talk to you about the, the timing of it. You you talked a little bit about that. In that, yeah, we have some of these folks are getting up there in years. Mm-hmm. I know, for example, Bob Berglund, the former right. uh, U.S. Secretary of Agriculture, who was one of the people you interviewed and who was a key player, uh, is no longer with us. So that's part of the timing. But it also sounds like part of the timing also has to do with we're at a point in the sustainable ag movement when it's getting taken seriously, but we're not quite there. And mm-hmm. so maybe something like this. I wonder if that played into it a little bit of, of the as
1: far as the timing of doing something like this. Well, you're right. I think it was primarily motivated by my feeling that we're really losing these voices and that they needed needed to be heard and particularly with Berglund, this this thing i mentioned about this times the uh, the report that they did on the structure of agriculture trying to choose it's you read it and it could have been written last month practically so to bring that out and make it make that point about the structure of agriculture issue has to come to the fore in a way that if we're really going to get deep change in
0: I, I I don't want to go too off uh, off track here but y- give us just a little summary of that time to choose report. What why 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 do you feel like it could have been written just
1: last week? What what, what were well, some of the, well, the main concerns points were that farmers were going out of business, that there was more somewhat more more this wasn't emphasized too much but there were more concerns about the environment that were mm-hmm. starting to to emerge, that there were issues about the food and uh and farmers being able to survive. And one of the backstories on that Time to Choose report, and I brought this up with Mr. Berglund, although he hardly remembered it until I reminded him of it, he had a neighbor up in the Roseau area that was an organic farmer, probably a guy who just never got into it anything but organic, Mm -hmm. but was doing it, I think it went 1,500 acres, and he was just putting along and still keeping his farm going and everything while other farms in the area were going out of business, and that piqued uh, Berglund's interest enough to Hmm. be convinced to that, yes, it would make sense to take a look at the whole issue of what role organics can play in it. And that led into that other big report that he did, the report and recommendations on organic farming.
0: That's an example, another example of why that an oral history like this is so important.
1: Right. And one thing, just to quickly state, one of the highlights of the the interviews for me is his account of it. He didn't talk about it much, but Ferd Hefner talks about it in his interview. And Roger Blobaum, how, how the as soon as Reagan came in and and uh, the guy named Jack Block became the mm-hmm. Secretary of Agriculture when they came in in 1981 one of their first actions was to pull back these reports the time to choose and the organic report and Ferd and and Roger and some people knew this was happening and they went up to uh, Beltsville to where they knew those boxes were stored and took them before they could (laughs) be burned. Roger has a great story about it. And then Garth Youngberg, who was one of the main authors of the report in his interview, he talks about that too. I don't think he was part of the group. They never did tell me exactly who actually snuck up and got them. But um, when they were spread around, and Roger said he continued to spread this report around for years, and Garth told me that ultimately that report was published in seven languages and it wouldn't have happened if it hadn't been for these guys oh, being so great. adamant about it.
0: Oh, that just shows how passionate they were. They oh, weren't yeah. just doing a job and then, okay,
1: well, i am you know, got no. a new administration and I'm done. They were really passionate about yeah. it. And they didn't want to see this thing suppressed because it actually came out in October of, of 1980. Reagan was elected in November. Mm-hmm. So there was this short window there.
0: Picking who to interview must have been... Uh, it must have been an incredible challenge. Um, how did you, what was some of the criteria? What, what did you, uh, how did you decide, especially since you were tra- often traveling to interview these folks around the country? And mm-hmm. so that was, you had, that had to play into it a little bit. But how did you go about that? I mean, like you said, there's so many people who are kind of hidden behind the headlines kind of stories, too. These it, it, There was probably some low-hanging fruit. But then yeah. after that, you had to kind of figure out, okay, this is who we time or resources to interview and this is what we can't.
1: Yeah well my original idea was this was this one-year project ultimately took a little more than three years uh, with the uh, Minnesota Institute for Sustainable Ag and being getting a a, a share a portion of the endowed chair program that gave me First $40,000 to do some interviews, and I was going to do, I promised, 10 to 12. This is relevant because what I found out, I would say, I don't know, I think it was just about every single interview. I would begin talking to somebody about what we were trying to accomplish, and they'd say to me, Well, you got to interview yeah. X. <laughs> and so, the and you list. know, as a journalist, how that works <laughs> yeah. one thing leads to another. Yeah. Exactly. So, I just kept getting more and more people like, Oh, you're right. You know, I've got to interview this person, that person. So, then that even forced me to be a little more focused in what I would explain to people, and especially even to people I did not interview that I think would have liked to have been, is my focus was on policy. Mm-hmm. These had to be people that, they could be farmers, they could be lobbyists, whatever, but the focus really needed to be around what did how, how did they contribute to this overall environment of policy improvements over the last 35 years. Mm-hmm. So that had to be, I called it both a focus and kind of a filter. Yeah. That meant a lot of really great, wonderful folks didn't didn't get interviewed there's a this archive could be twice as big mm-hmm. and even still stay on policy pretty yeah, much yeah but there's just a, a whole lot of people that I didn't get interviewed uh, well and this gets back to an earlier one I sure wish I would have gotten my mentor Victor Ray who's an yeah. un, pretty unknown guy but really an important man in yeah. farmers unions history and especially like in our land stewardship project history he was our our mentor but people that are still living The number one group or whatever that's missing in there, in my view, and I might get some energy or see if I can raise a little money to cover the cost, would be um, the funders. The movement, as we call it now, for sustainable agriculture, would not have really been able to flower the way it did, as much as it did, without the support of some visionary funders. But there's also, people have mentioned, get in trouble when you're leaving I could be leaving some wonderful right. folks out too, but Bill Lee was so important back in the eighties the to the movement. And then on the uh, on the congressional side I Patrick Leahy. Patrick Leahy had his staff person, Kathleen Merrigan. And I did get to interview Kathleen fortunately, but Leahy did so much uh, and especially then working with Senator Harkin, who I did interview, fortunately. But there's a lot of folks out there that were really critical that still could be interviewed.
0: One of the things that really struck me, and I think that's what, that's why this archive is so just really does an excellent job of not only providing this history, but some really integral insights into what makes something like this work. Is is that you were there from the beginning. But from the ones that I listened to, really was struck by how when somebody is part of a movement and has been there for a lot of it, the danger is sometimes they don't ask the questions that maybe people who don't know anything about it would want to ask. But you seem to strike that balance of you were able to to direct the conversation in a way that really would pull out some things that maybe the people had forgotten or, or weren't aware that was going to be of interest. But you also ask the questions that, like you said, somebody in 50 years might want to ask. And I think you just did an excellent job of that. It just really helps kind of make this a full-bodied kind of piece of not only history, but just a real example of how a movement can come about. But was there anything that you, even though you've been there for all those years, that you were like, wow, I didn't know that, or I hadn't thought of it
1: that way, that just, was there a couple things that really surprised you? Yeah, I think, you know, I already probably said the main surprise from the interview content was, I'd heard rumbles about how that report was suppressed, Mm -hmm. the two reports on structure and on organics, but I didn't hear, I never really heard the story about actually having to sort of sneak out the uh, boxes of the books and spreading (laughs) those around and everything. That was a surprise to me, and a point of pride for a lot of these people now that uh, that that happened and that they had enough nerve to uh, to do it I that I think that was that was a a pleasant surprise I think from uh, from sort of the the actual doing of the interviews, it's not exactly so surprising. But I was gratified by how great many people's memories were. Hmm. Some of the questions I was asking as uh, were came in part because I couldn't quite remember myself. But I knew if I talked about enough from enough people, I'd I'd get uh, I'd get some of these. Things filled in well. Uh, Ferd Hefner, in particular, he has the longest interview at three hours long, and uh, I looked at it this morning. It's thirty-nine pages of transcript, wow. and it takes you from the nineteen seventy-seven Farm Bill up through twenty fourteen. And Ferd can actually say, "Well, so and so wasn't on that on the Ag committee and that Farm Bill; they were on the next one." But then, the, you know, he just has this encyclopedic memory. Mm. And to get that down uh, uh, was really... Wonderful. And that was a that was a pleasant aspect of, of doing these interviews. And the other thing, and there again, it wasn't so much as surprising, is that I found two in person they were honored to be interviewed, I would say, and they were humble about it. They were humble about their accomplishments and mm-hmm. were always talking about how we worked as a team. That was a big aspect of it. Nobody was talking about how I did this or I did that. There was very little little of that. There was a genuine humility and a sense of the way things were. Accomplished with was through all of this uh, teamwork.
0: Yeah, I was struck by that. How many of the interviews where people mentioned other people's names? Yeah, uh, you know. Oh, and when we were working with this person or that person, rather than like you said, the I. Right. Kind of situation,
1: and uh, I was grateful for that because I couldn't interview everybody, mm-hmm. and I didn't always remember all of those folks either. So we did. I really did encourage people to name other people that uh, they worked with, so we got that on the, on the record. And then the other thing that was consistent, as I mentioned before, there was there is sort of a, a sadness to the fact that some of these changes that seem so righteous haven't been happening the way they I everyone mean, hoped they would.
0: Was there any uh, favorite? You mentioned a couple things. It sounds like that really uh, pop into your mind mind like the the interview of about the documents uh, that were rescued and that right. kind of thing but were there any others that really some favorite ones that you, you you uh i don't know that maybe
1: you're like wow this is why i did this project that's kind of a dangerous question because i don't want to leave yeah anybody <laughs> out but it, the truth is is uh it really was fun doing these interviews that was really, I just really enjoyed them. And, uh, and they were, they all had something that made them memorable to me and, and, and worthwhile, you know, so I really truly did enjoy all of them. I think the way I could approach this question is for maybe people that haven't gotten into them at all, where to start or a couple of places to look. Mm -hmm. I mean, I've already mentioned Ferd Hefner. I think if Ferd Hefner and Kathleen Merrigan, if you want to look at just the history, taking it through the years of the farm bills, those two people, and then maybe the uh, interview that one of the latter ones I did where I got Ferd to sit down and have a dialogue with Senator Harkin. Mm -hmm. And Harkin was in Congress uh, for 40 years, 10 years in the House and five terms in the Senate, and uh, to have Ferd and him taking you through his history and what they accomplished during his time there, which went back to 75, is very very good place to, to start. I think one of my favorite on a kind of personal level is I've, I really care for this woman named Sister Mary Tashney. Mm-hmm. and she was a, an early board member of Land Stewardship Project, the School Sisters of Notre Dame, and she talks a lot about the role of the church in the early days, and she's such a fine person, and we had such a nice time being interviewed. I just think the, the world of her and brought that religious aspect into it. I mentioned Roger Blowbaum. Uh, Roger lives out in Washington, DC. Roger brings a real sense of history. And I wanted to note Roger because Roger is on still doing this work. I think he told me he had hundred boxes in his basement of just he just kept all this great record. And so he's been working for years now with the University of Wisconsin, and it's Roger And it's just all of his papers and marking all of these times he testified in the hearings of what was accomplished. It's a wonderful contribution that's going to be a great value, I think to historians mm. in the future. I'd encourage people on that on that front and then I got to uh, interview for example on um, some people that were not Caucasians that were very much a part of it and I'd like to even do do more of that. Uh, I think about my interview with Don Bustos, this farmer down in uh, Santa Cruz, New Mexico, mm-hmm. who's a really articulate man who's farming on this on this small farm that went back 300 years in his family. And uh, the role of water in their far- in their farming is so important. And uh, and he talks about uh, how he benefited himself from this program, the SARE program, the Sustainable Ag Research and Education Program grant. Even though he is an advocate for the program, he got one for his own farm and how it changed his life by being able to produce greens in his uh, greenhouse all year long using... Uh, solar technologies and things. Mm -hmm. And he just has this stirring example of how Hmm. significant that program was. And I would also say for people starting out, maybe a good place to start is those roundtable discussions where we brought 10 people together around a table, and all of them deserved a full interview. Some of them did. I did interview in more detail, but that's a really good way to start with looking at some of these leaders going way back.
0: Did you get a sense of people's, and I'm sure this varied a lot, but a general sense of the mood as far as, did they think Oh, we thought we would, when we were starting 30 years ago, we would be a lot further along right now, or we're about where we think we're going to be, or did they feel positive about the future? I don't know. Talk a little bit about some of that, if some of that came out through the interviews, about people's feelings, not just looking at the history, but where we're at and where we're going, if they feel like we're on the right track and or we're, we've, we're way behind where we should be. I know, you know, It's it's a lot of it is personal, the
1: way people kind of approach this work, I guess. But yeah, did guess. you get a sense of that? Well, yeah, somewhat. (laughs) I would say that when people got to talking about it, even though they maybe hadn't thought about it so much until I had this opportunity to just sort of talk it over and think, they really did look back and feel good about what has been accomplished and the role they played in it. But I did find, uh, I think, part of the reason that there's this kind of humbleness among most of these people is they still realize that so much still didn't happen and it just took so long i mean like the the stories about the organic food production act that was passed in 1990 but then it took i think it was 12 years of work before it finally actually took hold and there was this operating board of of uh, the organic board and everything like that at least 11 years uh, so things like that were were kind of areas of frustration i guess mm-hmm. on how long it takes and having to and then the uh, dealing with the constant feels like the constant effort to undo things that get mm-hmm. done once, and they keep getting undone or efforts to undo them. All of that was in there. But I do think people, when they look back, they were glad that they, I heard one one of the interviews said, well, at least we made a dent. You know, I think most people feel good about good that and, and really realize that, you know, we do have a thriving organic food movement that wasn't there 35 years ago hardly at all, mm-hmm. and that there is a, now this interest in soil health. Mm -hmm. And the people I interviewed were talking about soil health, you know, going back to the 50s, some of the writers and things. And that seems to really, I think that's the solid thing. I don't think that's going to be a passing fad. Mm -hmm. That part is positive. (laughs)
0: The National Sustainable Agriculture Oral History Archives interviews are available on the Minnesota Institute for Sustainable Agriculture's website at www.misa.umn.edu. There, you will also find written transcripts of the interviews and roundtable discussions. If you have comments or suggestions about this podcast, contact Brian DeVore at bdevore at landstewardshipproject.org, where you can call 612-722-6377. Thanks to Laura Borgendale. Western Minnesota musician, for Ear to the Ground's theme music, and a special thank you to all of Land Stewardship Project's members who make initiatives such as this podcast possible. If you're not a member, visit landstewardshipproject.org to learn how you can support LSB. Thanks for listening.